right, I want you to be really honest with me, okay? Has someone ever asked you if you're free to help them? And you are, but you really kind of wish you weren't free. Anyone? You know what I'm talking about? Okay, good. Truthfully, truthfully, your schedule is wide open to help them, wide open, but you kind of wish you had something going on instead so you could decline. You know what I'm talking about? Anyone feel this before? Well, if so, you're in luck. Thanks to the creative mind of a comedian named Nate Townsend, there is now an app for that. Serious as a heart attack. That's right. The app is called Got This Thing. And the app Got This Thing has been specifically designed for such situations. Get a load of this. The app uses your phone's location to populate your Google Calendar with local stuff that's happening. All you have to do is click on the Get Busy button, and in an instant, your blank schedule turned into a confetti of things to do. Your schedule becomes full. So, so just th think about this, okay? There is an app that fills your calendar so you can pretend to be busy. Sorry, can't help you move that Saturday morning. Uh, my schedule's full, just look at it. My Google Calendar's full. Some of you right now are trying to download that app, and <laughs> I see you sinners. An app that fills your schedule so you can pretend to be busy. But you know, sometimes we wish it was the exact opposite, don't we? Indeed, sometimes, or oftentimes, our schedules are filled with things we really don't want, are they? But you know what? It's, that's not just the case with our schedules. No, this is often true in regards to our world, meaning many times we find that it's filled with things we wish weren't there. In his hymn, A Mighty Fortress is Our God, the great reformer Martin Luther correctly reminds us of something that our world is filled with. You know what that is? Devils. You know the line from the song, don't you? Remember the third verse? And though this world with devil filled should threaten to undo us. However, Luther wasn't primarily referring to spiritual or ghostly devils in that song, nor was he referring to the devil with a capital D. No, Luther was speaking of men and regimes who are actively and adamantly opposed to God and his people. Devils who seek to crush God's people. In faith, the Apostle John speaks of such persons in 1 John 2.18. Notice how he describes these people who are bent on opposing God and harming God's church. I have it here on the screen. Listen to what John writes. He says, children, 
it is the last hour. And as you have heard that Antichrist is coming, so now many Antichrists have come. Notice the Bible makes a clear distinction that there is the Antichrist, we would say with a capital A, who will come before the return of Christ. This is a, think of the little horn spoken of in Daniel 7. The man of lawlessness in 2 Thessalonians 2. The beast that comes out of the sea in Revelation 13. There's the Antichrist, we could say with a capital A. Yet John also says that there are many Antichrists, little a, listen to me, who have already come. Throughout the course of history, there have been Antichrist figures who prefigure the full embodiment of evil to come. And faith, a premier characteristic of these Antichrists, these devils that our world is filled with, is that they oppose and they seek to crush God's bride, the church. They seek to oppose the people of God. And this is where King Saul fits in. For over a year now, we've been working our way through the book of 1 Samuel. And faith in our text this morning, the veil slips away and Saul is seen for the Antichrist figure he really is. In this passage, Saul harms God's people in incredibly wicked and disturbing ways. He's not only opposed to the Christ, the anointed one of Dave, God's son David, but indeed God's people. This is, as we're about to see, is a very dark passage. And the sad reality is faith. Saul is not the last antichrist or devil. God's people will experience. As John makes clear, many antichrists have come and will continue to come. And faith, they will threaten to undo us. So here's the question I want us to consider this morning. How can we, knowing this reality, knowing this truth, how can we endure such strong opposition as God's people? What are we to do? How can we endure when Saul-type figures emerge and begin to press in and afflict us, the church? Well, I believe our passage this morning offers a valuable truth that puts steel into Christian endurance. And what's that truth? Well, turn with me to 1 Samuel 22. As you're turning there, let me give you the context. You'll recall that since 1 Samuel 19, David, God's true anointed king, he's been on the run from King Saul. Saul, filled with jealousy and rage and envy, wants to kill David. Well, while on the run, David comes across the priest Ahimelech. Remember this in 1 Samuel 21? 
And do you remember what Ahimelech gave David and his men who were hungry? What did he give them? Bread. Yeah, showbread, the bread of presence from the tabernacle. They were hungry, they needed provisions, and the priest gave provisions, gave the showbread, the bread of presence to David. And, and in that chapter, chapter 21, there's this odd verse that it really just seems out of place because the narrative's going in this, all of a sudden the author drops this line that Doeg the Edomite was there. Doeg the Edomite, he was a faithful servant of Saul. And there in verse 20, verse 7 of chapter 21, I'll just kind of add it, and it seems out of place why he would include this detail. Well, it seems out of place until you get to chapter 22. Because here it's going to all make sense. So look with me at 1 Samuel 22. David had just left the cave of Adullam. He made sure his parents are in well-keeping. And follow along with me as I read verse 6, beginning in verse 6, all the way down to the end of the chapter. Now Saul heard that David was discovered, and the men who were with him. Saul was sitting at Gibeah under the tamarisk tree on the height with his spear in his hand, and all his servants were standing about him. And Saul said to his servants who stood about him, Hear now, people of Benjamin, will the son of Jesse give every one of you fields and vineyards? Will he make all your commanders of thousands and commanders of hundreds that all of you have conspired against me? No one discloses to me when my son makes a covenant with the son of Jesse. None of you is sorry for me or discloses to me that my son has stirred up my servant against me to lie in wait as at this day. Now notice, notice what Saul was doing here. He has these people in front of him and he's appealing to their self-interest, isn't he? This echoes the warnings, if we're reading our Bibles carefully, this echoes the warning of Samuel in chapter 8, verses 10 through 14. Remember in that passage, Samuel is warning God's people why they do not want a king like the nations. And the people say, forget about it, we do. And one of the things that Samuel warned them is that they would have now a king who would take from some and give to others in order to bolster his power. And that's exactly what Saul is doing here. Not only that, he's boasting about it. Saul is becoming the kind of self-serving, unjust king that Samuel feared. So he's, he's sitting on the tamarisk tree. He's saying, what's wrong with you guys? You don't feel sorry for me? And then notice what we see now in verse Nine. Then answered Doeg the Edomite. Dun, dun, dun. He shows back up again. And notice what he says. The brown noser that he is. Then answered Doeg the Edomite, who stood by the servants of Saul. Uh, I saw the son of Jesse coming to Nob, to Ahimelech, to the son of Ahitub. And he inquired of the Lord for him and gave him provisions and gave him the sword of Goliath, the Philistine. Now, Saul is about to go off. 
off with anger and rage. But before we read that, there's something important we need to understand about this chap, Doeg. Doeg the what? Edomites. Edomites were the historic enemies of Israel. They were descendants from Esau. And one of the things that they had do is they, the Edomites had refused to give the Israelites passage through their territory after the Exodus. They've always been a troublesome group of people to God's people. And Doeg is now just following suit. So now notice verse 11. Then the king sent to summon Ahimelech the priest, the son of Ahitub, and all his father's house, the priests who were at Nob, and all of them came to the king. And Saul said, Hear now, son of Ahitub. And he answered, Here I am, my lord. And Saul said to him, Why have you conspired against me, you and the son of Jesse, and that you have given him bread and a sword and have inquired of God for him so that he has risen against me to lie in wait as at this day? Then notice, Ahimelech's going to try to reason with him, but you can't reason with an antichrist figure. Verse 14, then Ahimelech answered the king, and who among all your servants is so faithful as David, who is the king's son-in-law and captain over your bodyguard and honored in your house? Is today the first time they inquired of God for him? No. Let not the king impute anything to his servant or to all the household of my father for your servant has known nothing of all this, much or little. He's like, whoa, whoa, whoa. You're mad at David? Honored and revered in Israel who has served you well? Notice the king's response, verse 16. And the king said, you shall surely die, Ahimelech, you and all your father's house. And in this moment, Saul is convinced I am going to defeat God's anointed. I'm shaking my fist at God and God's anointed, and I'm going to have victory. Saul is thinking, I'm having my way. So notice what happens next. Verse 17, And the king said to the guard who stood about him, Turn and kill the priests of the Lord, because their hand is also with David. And they knew that, and he fled and did not disclose it to me. But the servants of the king would not put out their hand to strike the priests of the Lord. Can you imagine that moment? How tense that would have been. The king, in a rage of jealousy, orders his commanders to kill him. And what do they do? No, they recognize the insanity of this man. Saul is losing all support. Verse 18. Then the king said to Doeg, Doeg the Edomite, you turn and strike the priests. And Doeg the Edomite turned and struck down the priests, and he killed on that day 85 persons who wore the linen ephod. But notice not only that, and Nob, the city of the priests, he put to the sword both man and woman, child and infant, ox, donkey, and sheep, 
he puts to his sword. What does this remind us of? Think with me for a moment. What was Saul commanded to do in 1 Samuel 15? He was commanded to wipe out the Amalekites in obedience to God. But now notice what Saul is doing. If there's any, any more evidence to convince you that he is functioning as an antichrist figure here, he's not conducting a holy war against pagans, but against God's people. But notice, there's a remnant. Verse 20. But one of the sons of Ahimelech, the son of Ahitab, named Abiathar, escaped and fled after David. And Abiathar told David that Saul had killed the priests of the Lord. And David said to Abiathar, I knew on that day when Doeg the Edomite was there that he would surely tell Saul, I have occasioned the death of all the persons of your father's house. That's more true than David's about to understand. Stay with me. Do not be afraid. For he who seeks my life seeks your life. With me, you shall be in safekeeping. Notice the contrast between the kings here. King Saul says, you will surely die. King David, the true anointed king, says, stay with me. You will be safe. This is God's word. Amen. Amen. Not too long ago, I was watching a hockey game with my sons when a bench-clearing brawl broke out. I know, surprising, surprising, that a fight would break out at a hockey game. But you know what caused the fight? You know what caused the scuffle? It got all the players involved? A player intentionally hit the other team's goalie. And for those of you that play hockey or follow hockey, you know what a significant no-no that is. Because in effect, what you have to understand is this. To hit the goalie is to, in effect, strike and hit the entire team. You don't dare check or intentionally hurt the goalie. To do so is to intentionally check or hurt the entire team. That's why the entire team got involved. Well, faith, the Bible makes a similar, similar, not airtight, but please hear me, a similar comparison to God and his church. What I mean is this. To oppose or to afflict God's people is to oppose God himself. And let me show you how this is made clear in Scripture. Think for a moment of Acts chapter 9. What do we read in Acts chapter 9? What does Jesus say to Paul on the Damascus Road. Right? Paul, who at that time was called who? Saul. He was known for his intense persecution of Christians. And do you remember what Jesus says to him at that time? He says this. I have it on the screen. Now, as he went on his way, he approached Damascus, and suddenly a light from heaven shone around him, and falling to the ground, he heard a voice saying to him, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting the church? Is that what Jesus says? He says, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? And he said, who are you, Lord? And he said, I am Jesus, who you are persecuting. 
in Jesus' mind what people do to his people, it's like he's doing it to them, to himself. You see, to oppose God's people is to oppose God himself. Faith, in the passage we just read, Saul thinks he is simply opposing David, God's anointed king. However, what Saul is actually doing is opposing God himself. Indeed, Saul is putting himself in the place of God. But that's not all. You see, unbeknownst to Saul, and he would be so angry if he knew this, Saul, in his rage, he's actually bringing God's purposes to pass. Although Saul thinks he has won a battle against God's anointed, he's actually falling in line in fulfilling God's plan. And here's why. And this is part of the reason why we work through books of the Bible chapter by chapter, paragraph by paragraph, so we fully understand what the text is saying in light of its context. What you have to understand, Faith, is that the wicked act committed by King Saul and Doeg the Edomite is a fulfillment of God's word of judgment against the house of Eli back in 1 Samuel chapter 2. Remember Eli and his wicked, evil sons and how Eli refused to act, and God said, I'm going to wipe out your house. Here, I have, I have it on the screen. Listen to this. This is what God says to Eli. It says, Behold, the days are coming where I have cut off your strength and the strength of your father's house, so that there will not be an old man in your house. And then in distress, you will look with envious eye on all the prosperity that shall be bestowed on Israel, and there shall not be an old man in your house forever. The only one of you whom I shall not cut off from my altar shall be spared to weep his eyes out, to grieve his heart, and all the descendants of your house shall die by the sword of men. And lest you think that by God allowing and enacting Saul to wipe out this priesthood, that these were perfect, spotless, righteous men, no. They were following in the same pattern of Eli and his sons. And what I want you to see is that although Saul thought he was opposing God's kingdom, what he was really doing was bringing God's word to pass. For you know who Ahimelech was? He was the great-grandson of Phinehas, one of the two depraved sons of the priest Eli. So faith, what we see in this passage are two things. We see the wickedness of Saul, bloodthirsty Saul, and we see the sovereignty of God bringing his purposes to pass. Do Saul and Doeg the Edomite bear full responsibility for their slaughter of the priests and the people at Nob? Yes. Did God in his sovereignty bring it to pass? Yes. Man is fully responsible and culpable for his sinful actions and, the Bible teaches, God is sovereign in using them for his purposes. Now stay with me here. Put these two together and one clear truth emerges and that is this. Even God's enemies 
fulfill his purposes. Even God's enemies, who in the moment think they're raging against God and they're gaining ground against God, even God's enemies fulfill his purpose. And this, I want to argue, is the main point of 1 Samuel 22. In faith, 1 Samuel 22 is not the only place this is taught. We see this throughout the pages of Scripture. Bear with me here. For example, the Apostle Peter teaches the exact same thing. Indeed, he combines man's responsibility and culpability and God's sovereignty in one verse. Listen to what the Apostle Peter preaches in Acts chapter 2, referring to the crucifixion of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. He says, This Jesus delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God. God's sovereignty. He ordained that his son would be slaughtered on a cross for the forgiveness of your sins and my sins. This was God's definite plan, Peter's saying. Notice what he says, you crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men. The wicked, evil actions of men, God's sovereign plan. Or think of a few chapters later in Acts. What do the believers pray in Acts chapter 4? They say this. For truly in this city they were gathered together against your holy servant Jesus. We're reading a prayer here. Whom you anointed, both Herod and Pontius Pilate. They didn't attend Sunday school. They weren't good guys. Herod and Pontius Pilate, along with the Gentiles and the peoples of Israel, to do whatever your hand and your plan had predestined to take place. Christian, take note that even God's enemies, in their opposition against God and his people, are not acting out of the scope of God's sovereignty. On the contrary, they are fulfilling God's very purposes. And this I want to argue is what puts steel into Christian endurance. This truth. Dale Ralph Davis captures it best. He says this. He says, If we know that as men oppose God and his people, they will only fulfill his word, it doesn't take away sorrow or grief or suffering, but it gives secret certainty of victory. 1 Samuel 22 is as clear as any text on this. There's no way the Lord's enemies can gain the edge. He has them completely outclassed. If they knew what they were doing, they would kick themselves. If the Lord's word of judgment is so sure, certainly his word of consolation is just as solid. Indeed, when suffering from the hands of various antichrists, be it evil men or regimes, I believe this text highlights two truths that are meant to stiffen our backbone and to give us encouragement. And that's what I want to direct your attention to for the next couple minutes here. Okay? So even God's enemies fulfill his purposes. This, this is encouraging to us Along those lines, Christian, take courage that no, and I want to see what we see illustrated in this passage, is that 
Take courage to know that God's enemies are fragile. I want you to look again at verses 7 and 8 and verse 15. And Saul said to his servants who stood about him, Hear now, people of Benjamin, will the son of Jesse give every one of you fields and vineyards? Will he make you all commanders of thousands, commanders of hundreds, that you all have conspired against me? No one discloses to me when my son makes a covenant with the son of Jesse. None of you is sorry for me or discloses to me that my son has stirred up my servant against me to lie in wait as at this day. And then verse 17. And the king said to the guard who stood about him, turn and kill the priests of the Lord because their hand is also with David. And they knew that he fled and did not disclose it to me. But the servants of the king would not put out their hand to strike the priests of the Lord. Benjamin Franklin once said, quote, there is no smaller package than a man wrapped up in himself. And that's exactly what we see here with King Saul. <laughs> Notice, and, and I think I can say this, and it's actually not uh, a metaphor, but notice King Saul is literally having a royal pity party. A royal pity party underneath the tamarisk tree. He is lamenting how no one is feeling sorry for him. He is self-absorbed. And just a, a quick word of application here. This is for free. But faith, let us guard ourselves from following in the same steps as Saul in these verses. The truth is, let's just be honest, we all can tend to feel sorry for ourselves, can't we? And not only that, at times we can also resent others who don't feel sorry for us as well. And something that often breeds self-pity is isolation. And we've had a heavy dose of that this past year, haven't we? And faith, the cure to the disease of self-pity is focusing on something far more glorious and majestic than ourselves, and that is God himself. For self-pity is simply the fruit of self-absorption. Yet as Christians, friends, we've been given a much more glorious and satisfying purpose than focusing on ourselves, and that is to live for Christ rather than ourselves. Amen? Our greatest concern is to be God's glory and honor rather than feeling sorry for ourselves. Yet notice Saul's greatest concern in this moment is himself. And I say that Saul is fragile Please hear me, not simply because of his emotional state, but because of what's happening all around him. Notice, and the author makes this very clear, Saul is losing everything. He's pushed away his own son. He's exterminated the Lord's priests. His closest servants are repulsed by him and won't listen to him. Saul has had it all, but now he's in the process of losing everything. Now you know what he can only say? At least Doeg is for me. And when you say Doeg is for me, that's, that's a bad spot. <laughs> and by way of application, it's important for us to remember, church, that as God's people, when we experience suffering and persecution at the hand of antichrists like Saul, 
we must remember that their power is on a leash and that they themselves are fragile and weak. They are mere men. In this passage, Saul is really joining the ranks of infamous company. He stands among the ranks of previous antichrists such as Pharaoh and Exodus, who, what did Pharaoh do? He instituted the government's postnatal care policy for Hebrew babies, didn't he? Saul becomes colleagues with the Antichrist Balak and Balaam, who by curse and counsel respectively plotted the destruction of Abraham's seed in Numbers 31 and 25. Saul stands with the Antichristists, if I can say that correctly, Jezebel, who tried to purge the prophets of the Lord in 1 Kings 18, and the Antichristist Athaliah, who almost wiped out the entire Davidic seed in 2 Kings 11. Now, Saul may seem like a far cry from the Antichrist Haman or Antiochus Epiphanes, but the difference is one of degree rather than kind. Indeed, Saul becomes one of a legion of Antichrists who have always vented their spleen on the Lord's servants. Think of the Edicts of Diocletian. Or today, the atrocities of the North Korean leader Kim Jong-un, or even most recently what's happening in China, where the Chinese government is holding Christians in secret brainwashing camps. This is the spirit of Antichrist. They have come, and they will continue to come. And unless we fortify our faith with the truth of Scripture, such as taught here in 1 Samuel 22, the threat to undo us will be strong. This is why it's important that we not believe the lie that our persecutors are ultimate and powerful, but rather that they are weak and they are nothing before a strong God and that even God's enemies fulfill His purposes. Second, I want to draw your attention to take courage that the church is indestructible. Look again at verse 20. But one of the sons of Ahimelech, the son of Ahitub, named Abiathar, escaped and fled after David. And then David welcomes him in. In 2017, uh, the church graciously, and we are still so thankful for this, graciously gave me an eight-week sabbatical. And during that time, we visited a different church every week. Three of them were out of state, five of them there were local churches here. Yet probably our favorite and most memorable church we visited was an all-black church. The people were so warm and welcoming of us. Now granted, as an all-black church, we stood out as sore thumbs <laughs> as visitors, but nonetheless, they were super friendly, welcoming, and the preaching was great. And I remember it was so fun to see my kids uh, in the worship service and respond. Because like most black churches, the congregation gives feedback the whole time. I mean, they're talking all the time. 
And at first, my kids were really, really nervous and apprehensive, like, what's going on here? This seems a little out of place. But about halfway through, my kids really got into it. In fact, at one point during the sermon, I look over, and my son Daniel's got his hands up, and he's like, preach, brother, preach. <laughs> it was great. It was great. You know, it's, it's not uncommon in such churches to hear the pastor ask the church, can I get a witness? You know what I'm talking about? Meaning, can I have someone bear witness to the truth of this text? Well, faith, Abiathar bears witness to the fact that God will always have a remnant. Indeed, he's another exhibit of evidence for a pattern that the Lord seems to follow. Let me give you an example. Are Israel's infant sons in Exodus ordered to Davy Jones' locker by Pharaoh's decree? Yes, but God will preserve one of them, one who will make quite a difference. In the book of Kings, does it seem that Baal has conquered and is Lord and master of Israel? Yes, it does seem that. But the Lord will see that there will be 7,000 whose knees never bow to Baal in 1 Kings 19. Does Athaliah's murder of the royal seed threaten to falsify the Davidic covenant? It sure seems that way in 2 Kings. Yet one of God's dear ladies will see that David Joash does not fall to Athaliah's dripping sword. And will the new pharaoh named Herod cut down Bethlehem's toddlers in his fury? Yes, but one of those toddlers will escape the Lord Jesus Christ. Faith Abathar then stands as a witness to the way the Lord insistently perseveres and preserves a remnant of his people. Please hear me. The priests of the Lord may be destroyed, but not destroyed completely. Abiathar's escape does not mean that all God's servants are immune from the world's butchery, but that the world's butchery can never wipe out all of God's servants. And friend, please hear me, faith. The Lord does not promise that we will never die for the kingdom of God. But it does promise that the kingdom of God will never die. And in this we take comfort. And in this we place our hope that because David's true son, the Lord Jesus Christ, whom God sent from heaven 2,000 years ago to live the perfect life we failed to live, die the death we deserve to die for our sins, and then be raised from the dead. Because of David's true son, because of what Christ has done, we who are united him by faith, we have the promise of eternal life. We have the promise that he will never leave us nor forsake us, no matter what difficulties we face. And we are now part of an everlasting kingdom that will have no end. Amen? His kingdom is is forever. And Christian, you're part of that by faith in Christ. What good news to give us resolve and endurance in the face of whatever antichrist and devils might come our way.
Let's pray.